This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 415th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a really big ornithomimosaur from the U.S., which is super cool. We also have the potential end of the ornithoscolida debate. Wow. Yeah, we've been wondering about that one for a few years. We also have a paper on coelophysis and its growth. And some papers that have to do with dinosaurs fighting, specifically headbutting and bite forces. That sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. We also have another entry in connecting things to dinosaurs. So we're going to connect baking to dinosaurs. Yum. <laughs> and we have dinosaur of the day, Udanoceratops. And I think you have a fun fact. I don't have one. So hopefully you have one. I do. <laughs> But before we get into all of that, I want to quickly thank some of our patrons. And we have a new patron to thank this week, and that's Witch Layers. Thank you very much, Witch Layers, for joining. And then rounding out our shoutouts, we've got Tarkia Tamer, Achilosaurus, Histologysaurus, Richard, Cezisaurus, Florida Fossil Hunter, English Graham, Sarasaurus Rex, and Talon. Hey, thank you so much for being part of our community fellow dino-it-alls. As you might know, we just got back from SVP, so expect all that content coming soon. And it's also November, which means it's Dinovember, so that's a great time to be covering extra dinosaur content from SVP. Isn't that also for drawing dinosaurs, Dinovember? I think there is a dino event I want to say in April for drawing dinosaurs. Dinovember, if I'm remembering correctly, was this family, this couple that spent a month one year convincing their kids that their dinosaur toys while they slept were like doing fun things. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting origin story. And I think it lasted the whole month of November. And since then, it's turned into this whole thing. That's a pretty cool origin story. Should we start hiding plastic dinosaurs around our house? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe wait until our kid's old enough to notice them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> On that note, we can jump into the news and talk about this new very large ornithomimosaur that was discovered in Mississippi. And it was published in PLOS One and written by Chinzorig Songbatar and others. Being from Mississippi, you might be able to guess, it means it was from Appalachia, which was separated from all the most popular dinosaurs in Western North America, oh. <laughs> also known as Laramidia, 
by the Western Interior Seaway. Well, pretty much almost all the dinosaurs we have, period, from North America are from Laramidia. Mm -hmm. We don't have that many from Appalachia. And the ones that we have tend to be pretty fragmentary or they're just known from footprints, things like that. So yeah, it's hard for them to compete over there in the East. But the obvious comparison for this new ornithomimosaur from Mississippi would be to Arkansas, since it's also from Appalachia. Unfortunately, we only have the foot of Arkansas, so we don't have a whole lot to go from in terms of what it looked like. But it is a safe bet that this new dinosaur is not Arkansas, since Arkansas is from the Aptian Albion, which is about 113 million years ago. And that's probably before the Western Interior Seaway even split North America into Laramidia and Appalachia. Hmm. It was just regular old Laurasia back then with Asia and North America stuck mm -hmm. together. This new dinosaur is from the Santonian. We really don't have any ornithomimosaurs from the Santonian anywhere in the world. Oh, that's cool. It is. It's really cool. There's like a 10 million year gap in the Santonian. is kind of the tail end of that gap. The Santonian is a pretty short stage. It's only from about 86 to 84 million years ago. So pretty brief mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of stages. Some of them are much longer than that. The closest dinosaur in time we have is probably Struthiomimus, which is also from North America, but obviously from Laramidia. And that one's about 80 million years ago at the earliest end of its time estimate. Oh, so a few million years in between. Yes. And it's too far in time for any other ornithomimosaurs and way too far apart when you include distance. So therefore, this new find is probably a new dinosaur. Unfortunately, we didn't find that much of it, or maybe I should say that much of them, because the authors think there might be multiple different dinosaur species. Oh, that's cool. Or genus based on the different sizes of the bones. So from the large individual or individuals, they found several bones. The best one is a nearly complete foot bone. Then they also found a partial ankle bone, and it's, it's really, that one's probably the worst bone. It's mm -hmm. a very small chunk of an ankle bone, but it helps you determine what type of dinosaur it is, potentially. Mm -hmm. There's also half of a couple other foot bones, and then several toe bones. Okay. Yeah, that's not much. No, it's actually pretty similar to Arkansas, where we basically just have like a leg, mostly a foot. From the smaller individuals, they found partial back vertebra an incomplete tail vertebra, a complete finger bone, a complete hand claw, and an incomplete tibia. Hmm. So we don't have any of the foot on that one. So then you don't know for sure if they're different or the same. Yeah, exactly. We can't even compare them to each other, but we do have some other bones, although finger bones and claws and a very small piece of a tibia aren't so great for deciding if it's a new genus. And even those vertebra that we have are just little pieces of the centra, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a great thing to go by for naming a new dinosaur. So they didn't name any new dinosaurs. Okay. We just have to call them the Utah ornithomimosaurs. That's for now. Maybe there'll be more fossils found later. Yes. And it's called Utah because that's the name of the formation, but it's spelled E-U-T-A-W. Hmm. So it's pronounced apparently just like Utah, the state, but it's spelled very differently. So in order to get some more information about these dinosaurs, they cut into the foot bone from the larger individual and found that it was at least 10 years old, which makes it a few years younger than Beishan Long. They also cut into the tibia of a smaller dinosaur or of the presumed smaller dinosaur and found seven growth rings. 
and the growth seems to be slowing, so it probably didn't even approach the size of the larger species. So another reason why they think it's at least two species. Yes, exactly, because they're they're quite different in size. And then one of them is seven years, the other one's 10 years, and the seven-year-old one looks like it's slowing down. We know a fair amount about ornithomimosaurs in Laramidia and Asia, just not in Appalachia. So Gallimimus, for example, maybe the most popular and most well-known of all ornithomimosaurs, are often listed in the 400 to 450 kilogram range, which is about 900 to 1,000 pounds and about 1.9 meters or over six feet tall. It's pretty large. It's really big. I, I didn't remember that Gallimimus was about 1,000 pounds. That's crazy. <laughs> it's probably a little bit shorter than they are in Jurassic Park because I think those are depicted well over six feet. I think there's a scene where they're standing next to like a truck full of people and it's about as high as a truck. Oh, I only remember the stampede scene. Yeah, but you can't really tell because they're sort of crouched behind a log. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to tell exactly how tall they are there. But yeah, I mean, most things in Jurassic Park are roughly 50% bigger than they were in real life. So I assume that's probably about the same. But the way they're depicted in Jurassic Park is pretty good other than the fact that they don't have any feathers. And we can't really blame them because we didn't, know that they had feathers when that movie was made. But yeah, if you think about a Gallimimus from Jurassic Park, stick some feathers on it, you, it's a pretty good approximation of what it looked like. The largest Gallimimus in the author's data set is about 400 kilograms or about 900 pounds, and that's based on femur circumference. So it's on the low end of that 400 to 450 kilograms, you know, only 900 pounds. <laughs> only, yeah. Pretty small. <laughs> And that actually happens to be the holotype of Gallimimus is the largest individual that's known as far as I know. On average, Gallimimus is pretty similar to Struthiomimus, although the largest Gallimimus finds are bigger than the largest Struthiomimus finds. But we have more Gallimimus finds than Struthiomimus finds, so that doesn't necessarily mean that they were always bigger. Mm -hmm. It could just be that we haven't found as many big Struthiomimus as Gallimimus. A quick note on Beishanlong, it's often credited as the largest ornithomimid, which is the group that excludes Dinochirus. Ornithomimosaurs <laughs> include Dinochirus. So if you include Dinochirus, Beishanlong is not the lar largest. But Yeah, Dinochirus was pretty big. It was. But the one Beishanlong we have is bigger than an average Gallimimus, but it's actually smaller than the largest Gallimimus, and again, the holotype. So I'm not sure where that confusion came from hmm. that Beishanlong was bigger than Gallimimus because they should have been comparing it to the holotype. And Beishanlong, for some reason, has been estimated at about 600 kilograms or 1,300 pounds. But these authors estimate it was significantly smaller at about 375 kilograms or 800 pounds. I mean, it's still heavy, but yeah, lighter. Yes, that's still about three times as much as an ostrich instead of about four times as much as an ostrich. <laughs> And I think it's a fair assessment to assume that Beishan Long is smaller than Gallimimus because you usually go based on femur circumference and the femur circumference of Beishan Long is smaller than Gallimimus. So I don't know why we would ever assume that it was heavier. Hmm. The authors also list a femur of Arkansaurus, which was really surprising to me because I don't think the femur of Arkansaurus has ever been published. Oh. The holotype is just a foot. And they have the specimen number listed, and I can't find that specimen number anywhere. So this might be the first time it's ever been published. Maybe it'll be published later. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they accidentally spilled the beans on it. I don't know. But they list its femur at one millimeter larger in circumference than Beishan Long as well, which would make Beishan Long the third largest ornithomimid, not even 
you know, let alone the largest, <laughs> it's got quite a bit smaller. But again, none of these are anything compared to Dinochirus. Dinochirus is an ornithomimosaur, not an ornithomimid, but an ornithomimosaur. And it's around 6,000 kilograms or over six tons, which is 10 times even the largest estimates of Beishan Long, even in its crazy larger version. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Dinochirus isn't a league of its own. It's a wonderful, crazy beast. Unfortunately, since I didn't find any femora of the small or large Utah ornithomimosaur, they had to estimate the femur size based on the bones they had. Oh, that's difficult to do. It is. So basically what you do is, okay, they have these toe bones or these foot bones. You take all the ornithomimosaurs that have those foot bones and a femur, plot them, you do a line, and then you take the point on that line that lines up with your foot bone. So that's a very rough estimate. It is pretty rough, and they gave some pretty big error bars on their estimates because of that. But it's the best that we can do. Unfortunately, we also don't know which ornithomimosaurs are the closest relatives, so they have to use the entire group of ornithomimosaurs, and not even, they didn't go with ornithomimids, they included Dinochirus, partly because one of them's so big that it, it's possible that it is sort of like Dinochirus. Because Dinochirus is such an outlier, though, the weight estimates for the Utah ornithomimosaurs vary quite a bit depending on whether or not they included Dinochirus in the data set when they estimated their sizes. So they ended up using three different bones, which all re resulted in very different sizes. <laughs> <laughs> the smallest estimate came from the tibia, which gave an estimate of about 160 kilograms or 350 pounds, which is about the size of the largest ostriches around today. Oh, okay. So that's not a small animal. No. But yeah. Small for a dinosaur, I guess. Yeah, but not that small for an ornithomimosaur. A lot of them were much smaller. The foot bone that they used gave the middle size estimate, and that one was extremely affected by whether or not Dinochirus was included in the estimate. It ranged from 220 to 1,000 kilograms, or 490 to 2,200 pounds. Wow. That's obviously a huge range. But that gives it about the size of a typical Gallimimus on the low end to much larger than everything except for a Dinochirus. So that's quite a range. Yeah, but even on the low end, the 220 kilograms, it's still a large animal. So that's the bone that gave the middle size estimate. The largest estimate came from the second pinky toe bone. Interesting. <laughs> this is what I'm calling it. Technically, it's on the fourth toe. But the first one is, you know, basically non-existent. So it's the one on the outside. I was just thinking it's interesting that you come up with the largest estimate based on a pinky toe bone. Yeah, it is a little weird. The smallest estimate for the femur circumference based on that toe bone is much larger than anything other than Dinochirus at about 880 kilograms oh. or 1,900 pounds. The large end of the scale is even bigger than Dinochirus at over 10 tons. Wow. But given the huge error bars, it's most likely somewhere in the middle, probably significantly smaller than Dinochirus. But it was definitely a big individual. But again, basing a femur size on a pinky toe bone is pretty sketchy. Mm -hmm. We can tell that its feet are bigger than any ornithomimosaur found to date other than Dinochirus because we have toe bones from a lot of them. Nice. The toe bones from the first two toes on this foot, assuming it's all the same foot, are a little bit smaller than Dinochirus. And then 
that middle pinky toe bone is just a few millimeters longer than Dinochirus. So that single pinky toe bone is 92 millimeters long compared to 89 millimeters in Dinochirus and 50 millimeters in the large Gallimimus. So it is quite a bit bigger. You'd mm-hmm. expect it to be maybe the new biggest ornithomimid if it turns out to be an ornithomimid. Most other ornithomimosaurs are in the range of 20 to 40 millimeters. So that gives you an idea of just how big this foot was. There is one important exception though, and that's Archansaurus, which is a pretty relevant one since it's so nearby. Mm-hmm. That one has the second longest toe bone after Dinochirus at 71 millimeters. So it is a very long toe bone. That is. The other toe bones on the large Utah ornithomimosaur are about 50% longer than Archansaurus foot bones. And Archansaurus wasn't actually included in the data because they, I don't think, have a femur. I don't know. It's a mystery to me whether or not they actually have a femur. I would have thought it would be in the data set if they had the femur to compare to, but they listed a femur size. So I don't know. I don't know what to think about Archansaurus. It's possible that both Archansaurus and the Utah Ornithomimosaur, the big one, both had big goofy feet, hmm. since that's literally all we have from Appalachia is this Arkansas Arkansaurus and large Utah Ornithomimosaur and their feet. Something about the feet made it easy to fossilize. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird that that is the same thing that we have in both of them and that they both have huge feet. So it could be like Dinochirus, which had the huge clawed arms and we assumed it was this massive oh. animal. Oh, and it's just something with large feet and maybe a small body. Yeah, exactly. Like a little clown dinosaur, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Big goofy clown feet. It's possible. But I mean, the most simple explanation is that it did have a large body to match the large feet. Yeah. But it is funny that it's so closely related to Dinochirus and that one we only had the hands for a long time mm-hmm. and thought it was huge. And this one we're assuming is huge based only on the feet. You could see history maybe repeating itself. Dinochirus is pretty big. It is. Yes, it is very big, but not as big as people thought. it. They thought it was something like a T-Rex, but right. like twice as big. And it turned out to be smaller than a T-Rex and also, you know, an herbivore. So <laughs> I think they were pretty tempted to name a new species, but the bones were just too disarticulated. And it also seems to be from at least two species. So that sort of, you know, put a wrench in their ideas. Mm. Plus the best bone from the larger individual, the nearly complete metatarsal, has a huge pathology obscuring a lot of the features of the bone. Oh. They call it a, quote, severe and chronic pathology, but they don't elaborate on it any more than that. It requires a separate study, maybe. Yeah, I think so. It might also be them trying to get another paper out of this because that's sort of the way it goes in research. You want to have a lot of papers Mm. from one discovery if you can. But they did show a picture of the bone and they sort of highlighted which part of it is a pathology. And it's a huge majority of the bone. (laughs) Hmm. So yeah, it makes it hard to find any unique features of the bone when it's covered in a massive tumor type thing. Yeah. The authors claim the larger individual is, quote, one of the largest ornithomimosaurian species known globally, end quote. And I think that's fair to say, considering the middle estimate from a toe bone on the smallest end gave an estimate near Gallimimus, which on its own qualifies as one of the largest ornithomimosaurs in the world. So yeah, I I think it's safe to say. But either way, it shows that there were unique ornithomimosaurs in Appalachia. Plus, there's evidence that there were at least two ornithomimosaurs coexisting in this ecosystem. So it's a pretty cool find. That is. Even though we didn't get any new dinosaur genera names out of it. 
yet. Yeah, very true. Up next, I've got a bold statement, which is that Ornithoscalida is dead. Oh. I'm pretty confident in this, <laughs> actually, <laughs> which is kind of, it, it, on the one hand, it's a little bit disappointing because- You were really into it. I was. I, I still find it incredibly unlikely that the original description of dinosaurs being Sariscians and Ornithischians and it being based on just a few dinosaurs, mm -hmm. that that was right. It just seems so unlikely to me. But I guess it's sort of been shoehorned retroactively because they just sort of put everything into those two groups. And yeah, so they, they were just defined based on like one individual each, more or less. Mm -hmm. But I would love it if that got turned on its head because I just love it when scientific things like that get all mixed up. I'm still pretty excited about this because even though Ornithoscalida is dead, the dinosaur family tree might be getting a big update anyway. Oh. And it might finally solve the problem of where Ornithischians were during the Triassic. Interesting. Because no matter where we look, we haven't been able to find any Triassic Ornithischians. The earliest ones that we can find seem to be from about 200 million years ago. And then that, that's like the boundary between the Jurassic and the Triassic. So mm -hmm. there's like 40 million years of dinosaurs in the Triassic when we don't have any Ornithischians and they're supposed to be half of the dinosaur family tree. So where were they? So that's what led to Baron et al.'s proposal in 2017 that Ornithischians evolved from theropods and then that combination would be called Ornithoscalida. Now in this new paper... Barron's actually one of the authors, right? Yeah. So at the time, Matt Barron was at Cambridge studying under David Norman, and Barron was the lead author, and Norman was the first co-author on the Ornithoscalida paper. On this new paper, they flipped places. So Norman is the lead author, and Barron is the first co-author. And this paper is also open access. It's in the Zoological Journal of the Linnaean Society. So you can see all of the nitty-gritty detail, although it is intense. So... I don't know. There are a couple pictures that summarize it pretty well in there <laughs> if you're really into taxonomy, but otherwise I think my description might be all you're interested in. <laughs> so jumping ahead, again, they're done with Ornithoscalida. They don't think Ornithischians evolved from Saurischians anymore. Now they think that Ornithischians evolved from Silosaurs. Oh, that's different. More or less. Not exactly from Silosaurs, but pretty much. So they came to this conclusion after making another massive analysis of early dinosaurs and including silosaurs. We've mentioned silosaurs a bit in the past. They're often called dinosaur morphs, meaning that they're close relatives to dinosaurs, but they aren't quite in the dinosaur family tree. They're more like cousins. Yeah, I think you've talked about silosaurs more than I have in dinosaurs of the day. Yeah, because sometimes those dinosaurs, it goes back and forth on how they get classified. Yes, exactly. So taxonomically, to me, I had a knee-jerk fear that Ornithischians wouldn't be dinosaurs anymore. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> That's oh, a no. big group. If they evolved from silosaurs and silosaurs aren't dinosaurs, does that mean they're not dinosaurs? But that's definitely not going to happen. For one thing, silosaurs weren't even named until like 2010. So they're a pretty new group. Ornithischia way predates it. And dinosaurs aren't going to be paraphyletic. They're not going to carve out silosaurs and all that kind of stuff. All right. So since... You said they think Ornithischians evolved from silosaurs. Are silosaurs now considered dinosaurs? Yes. Wow. Yeah, so congratulations to silosaurs. They are now dinosaurs. The, the paper came out on September 1st, and this week is our last catch-up week before SVP. 
So it's been out for a little while, and that means there have been plenty of time for comments. There were surprisingly few, though, I thought, meaning that I don't think this paper was particularly controversial. The only thing on Barron's Twitter is him retweeting Tom Holtz, and that tweet has a lot of likes, but only one comment. And the comment is just a complaint about some of the groups named in the paper, hmm. not any of the actual phylogenetic work other than just, we don't like the name you picked. Hmm. The dinosaur mailing list was pretty much more the same. The proposal of silosaurs being dinosaurs and being Ornithischians seems pretty uncontroversial. But again, even more so on the dinosaur mailing list, people did not like the group names that the author suggested. So for example, when you're lumping these things together, what do you call the new group of silosaurs on the way to what we're calling Ornithischians, but without including Ornithischians? I have no idea. I don't know either. And there have been some proposals. So they're often called Silosauridae or Silosauridae or Silosaurids. And that's what you would usually call a family name. But we know that it's a higher order than family. And now actually people think it's a paraphyletic group. Like there are multiple branches of the family tree that don't have a common ancestor that are all called silosaurids. So that's why I've been calling them silosaurs because it's a little less formal. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a mess. What Norman et al. propose is calling all of them Ornithischians and then making a new name for what we've been calling Ornithischians oh, this whole I time. Oh, I see why people might not like that. Yeah, I mean... People are generally okay with that, but which name you pick is very much up for debate. There's been a lot of Ornithischian talk over the last 150 years, so there have been a lot of groups, even at the high level, proposed in different names. There's like three or four contenders that basically all draw the line right about where that line needs to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we could pick any of them. And then Norman et al. also proposed a new name. But I'm not going to get into all those names because it's just too confusing and I don't think it's really settled which one people will use. But one thing that I think was funny is that on the dinosaur mailing list, Tim Williams put it as, quote, is Pisanosaurus an Ornithischian or a Silosaur? Answer, both. End <laughs> 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 quote. Because it's not the first time Pisanosaurus has been debated. Yes. Yeah, because another option would be to make a new name for the group that contains both Ornithischians and Silosaurs. And then, you know, like pan ornithischia or something, you know, something weird that just includes more. But it's probably not going to go that way. It's probably going to stick to silosaurs being ornithischians because it seems like everyone wants ornithischians to go all the way back to that very origin of dinosaurs in the mid-Triassic so that you've got those two nice sister groups of saurischians and ornithischians. One potential new name for what we could call the things that we've been calling ornithischians, the ones without silosaurs in it, is to call them predentata. I really like that name. Hmm. Marsh named predentata in 1894 because ornithischians have a separate bone at the tip of their lower jaw called the predentary. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also a better name than ornithischia just in general because bird-hipped, in air quotes, what ornithischia means. Dinosaurs are also in theropods. They have bird hips, including birds themselves, which obviously have bird hips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I like predentata. I think it's a really cool name. But right now it's considered a synonym of ornithischia. So I don't know if they'll pull it out and say, oh, it's not a synonym anymore. Now it's going to be a, a, a subgroup of ornithischia. Mm. But I, I just really like predentata. I don't think it's a strong contender. There are some other names that have been named more recently that people like, 
but we'll just have to see where it shakes out. I should also point out that Norman and Baron and the other co-authors here are not the first to propose Silosaurs as Ornithischians. The paper describing the Silosaur Sasisaurus said, quote, Various morphological features suggest its close phylogenetic affinity to Silosaurs, and both may be basal Ornithischian dinosaurs, end quote. I don't think that's the only paper that says things like that. No, it's not. I just point that out because that was the third sentence in the abstract. Mm. So it was definitely a main point that they were trying to make. And it's interesting in the case of Sasisaurus because it didn't have a predentary. It had a pair of bones that when you combine together, basically look like the single bone that makes up the predentary in what I was calling predentata. Hmm. So it's pretty similar. What they were proposing in that paper is that Sasisaurus was an ornithischian that shows one step before the evolution of the predentary. So it was like they started with these two bones and then later they fused into one. Mm. That wasn't really accepted, though, uh, after that paper. Of course, Pisanosaurus has what looks just like a predentary and may be 4 million years older, 229 versus 225 million years ago, which is partly why it's sort of a hodgepodge of this didn't evolve from that, and they might be a bunch of separate little groups and a paraphyletic thing, because that had the predentary before, the one that had two pieces of what looked like a predentary. Taxonomy is complicated. It is, especially in the Triassic, everything was crazy. Pisanosaurus was named in 1967 by Casamichela, and the title of the paper even calls it an Ornithischian. And then in a 1976 paper by Jose Bonaparte, he started it with, quote, the oldest known remains of an Ornithischian are those described, dot, 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 as Pisanosaurus, end quote. (laughs) So for a very long time, Pisanosaurus was considered an Ornithischian. And then later on in 2010, Langer et al. named Silosauridae and lumped these together. Although previous to that, there had been people saying, oh, Pisanosaurus and these other things are actually dinosaur morphs and they shouldn't count as Ornithischians. We go into a lot of those details in episode 354 because it was the dinosaur of the day then. Pisanosaurus was? Mm-hmm. Okay. I probably should have reread your dinosaur of the day rather than redoing all this research. <laughs> <laughs> but suffice it to say, it's been going back and forth quite a bit. Unfortunately, none of the known Silosaurids have been proposed as ancestors to Predentata. So we still have a ghost lineage for all of the Triassic before we get to what has up until now been called Ornithischia. Although it is possible that one of those Silosaurs, which are now Ornithischians, will eventually be considered a common ancestor to the Ornithischians that we know and love. It just seems like things in the Triassic are in flux. Yes. How we see them. Very much so. And a lot of the Silosaurs are known from really fragmentary material. So it's pretty hard to say whether or not they evolved into any of the Ornithischians that we see at the early Jurassic. So I don't know. But it it seems like a nice step in the right direction because Silosaurs now get to be called dinosaurs and it fills in that gap because it it was troublesome that there's this 40 million year gap and supposedly Ornithischians were supposed to be around that whole time and we had none. Mm-hmm. So at least if these are cousins to the later Ornithischians we might figure out one that was ancestral or we just know that it's out there somewhere. Maybe the fossil didn't even survive, but it'll give us some idea of what Ornithischians were up to in the Triassic. That's a to be determined. 
Yes. And now I need to learn way more about Silosaurs since they're dinosaurs. Yeah. There isn't that much to learn. I think there's only about a dozen of them. It's not like learning an entire group of dinosaurs. <laughs> they're also pretty similar. Yes. A lot of them are quadrupedal. They're all pretty small. And they've got sort of a beakiness to them. But considering Baron is on this paper and it's clearly at odds with Ornithoscolida, I think he's thrown in the towel on the Ornithoscolida thing. Seems that way. And now we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break. But when we get back, Sabrina's going to talk all about Coelophysis. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Our next paper was published in Scientific Reports by Daniel Barda and others, and it's how they found that the early dinosaur, Coelophysis, had a lot of variation in how they grew. Oh, I remember that from a poster, I think, at SVP. Hmm. Well, recent works, including Platyosaurus and Massospondylus, hinted that early dinosaurs had more individual variation in their size and their growth compared to other argosaurs, but that's hard to test. Mm -hmm. Then enter the Coelophysis bone bed. It's a bone bed from the late Triassic found in the Chinle Formation in what is now Ghost Ranch, New Mexico in the U.S. And the team looked at 24 individuals. Histology showed that these individuals were between less than a year old to at least four years old. 24 sounds like a lot, but for Coelophysis, that's only like an eighth of them. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Coelophysis. <laughs> 
Most of these individuals had either zero or one growth mark. Those with at least three growth marks were the least common out of the 24 individuals. They found a poor correlation between the dinosaurs' ages, based on those growth mark counts, the body sizes, and morphological maturity scores. That's a way to assess maturity based on things like, are the bones fused? Looking at the muscle scars, other details like that. Okay, so there's there's three things. You've got the size, you've got the number of growth rings, and then you've got a maturity score, which is based on a whole bunch of things. Yes. And the three of them didn't line up. So it's not like the big ones had certain skeletal features. The big ones weren't even specific ages. And by ages, I mean growth ring age. <laughs> yeah, they found that some of the specimens were primarily skeletally immature and that skeletal maturity, quote, may have been attained at a wide range of sizes. Interesting. There was also decreases in bone growth that might have been because of individual variation, or it could have been because they were living in a harsh environment like a drought. There's evidence that they all died together in some catastrophic assemblage. Now, if there was differences because of individual variation, that might have been an advantage for coelophysis when living in unstable environments, just like the early neotheropods and sauropodomorphs that lived through the end Triassic. Yeah, I guess I could see how if you're living in a drought and your body is okay with not growing as big, mm -hmm. that could be an advantage. Yeah. It's also an interesting point that this whole group might have been basically smaller, <laughs> or a lot of them might have been smaller because of a drought. And it makes you wonder, because you only find fossils of things that died. Mm -hmm. And if they were dying because they were malnourished, then you're getting a pretty skewed, weird version of what the dinosaur looked like. True. But in this case, maybe just some of them are skewed. <laughs> well, in the paper, they're saying early dinosaurs probably had highly variable growth trajectories, so they all grew at different rates. In coelophysis, maybe this is due to sexual dimorphism, but that's too difficult to tell. Yeah. Just like with any dinosaur, really. They do predict that there'd be even more variability in growth in older specimens of coelophysis, but they'd need to do more sampling. Yeah, for sure. And I think I remember seeing something on the different growth paths of coelophysis, mm -hmm. and there were way more than two. And as far as we know, the dinosaurs had two sexes. So if that's the case, you know, if they had like eight different patterns of growth. Mm. You couldn't just explain it with sexual dimorphism. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's just these early dinosaurs were more plastic. Yeah. Like you said, the Triassic was weird. Yeah. All right. Next up, we've got more fuel over the pachycephalosaurid debate and headbutting. <laughs> That's an old one. Mm -hmm. Oldie but goodie. So this recent paper found that Stegoceras, which is a pachycephalosaurid, may have headbutted. This was published in PLOS One by Brian R.S. Moore and others. They studied a, quote, exceptional skeleton of the pachycephalosaur, Stegosaurus validum. <laughs> the species always makes me laugh with the validum. <laughs> mm. But they also said it's, quote, the best preserved pachycephalosaur from Canada, end quote. Now, it's hard to know about muscles in dinosaurs, but... Quote, direct evidence of muscles is often preserved by the surface texture of bones, end quote. 
though not all muscles have visible textures and the entire muscle attachment area isn't always preserved. But this stegoceros specimen had a lot of surface textures. They analyzed casts, photos, and 3D scans, and they compared to muscles of crocodilians and birds. And they found that this stegoceros specimen had large muscles, a wide pelvis, a wide, rigid base of the tail, and stout hind limbs, and that, quote, produced a stronger, more stable pelvic structure that would have proved advantageous during hypothesized intraspecific headbutting contests, end quote. That's a mouthful. Yeah. So in other words, based on the muscle attachment things that they found, Mm -hmm. they think that those muscles would be good for smashing heads together? Yes. Sounds like the back half of the dinosaur was built in a way that was good for headbutting. I guess the obvious question then is, what about the head? (laughs) They didn't talk about that in this paper. That's one of the ones that we see the most often is if they hit their heads together, it would hurt a lot and would maybe cause problems. So obviously there's lots of room for future research, and they say this in the paper. Stuff like if we can study the growth series, how the skull dome and hind limb muscles grew together too. And future studies of other known pachycephalus or skeletons and dinosaurs with similar body plans so they could test this proposed muscle model. Yeah. I guess the other question is, what were they headbutting into? Because the traditional one is them running at each other and hitting their heads head to head. Sure. But a lot of papers that we've talked about, and when we talk about these dinosaurs, it's more that... The flank. Yeah, exactly. So they could have rammed their head into the side of the other animal Mm -hmm. while, like, we see a lot of modern animals do that. Things with horns and things like that tend to butt each other in the sides more than straight head to head. But there is some head to head, like some of the rams and things sort of lock horns Mm -hmm. with each other. But that doesn't necessarily mean they need to get like a full head of steam charging at each other. Right. It could be they happen to lock heads and then push back and forth. Yeah. Who knows? Muscles would be useful for that, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's like an opposite game of tug of war. (laughs) Next, we've got a new predictive modeling framework to estimate dinosaur bite force. This was by Manabu Sakamoto and published in Paleontology and Evolutionary Science. In the paper, they looked at muscles in archosaurs and muscle groups of living and extinct animals and made these predictions for 53 archosaur species, mostly theropod dinosaurs. It said they were, quote, reasonably reliable estimates, end quote. And that's based on comparisons to bite forces in other papers. So they made this framework and then compared what came out of the framework to previous papers to see how accurate it was. They found that Carcharodontosaurus, which is about the same size as T-Rex, had about half the bite force. Okay, I think that's in the same realm as what we've seen in other papers. I think so. It said, quote, Carcharodontosaurus is typical in build and skull proportion for a theropod dinosaur, end quote. So having half the bite force of T-Rex is, quote, more likely a reflection of just how unique T-Rex may have been compared to other theropods of similar sizes, end quote. So more evidence that T-Rex was just this unique animal. Mm -hmm. Spinosaurus had a bite force similar, quote, roughly in the same range as Synraptor, Gorgosaurus, and Displetosaurus, 
all substantially smaller theropods, end quote. So that seems to support Spinosaurus also had unique feeding habits for a theropod of its size. It also had adaptations to have fast snapping jaws, which, quote, is commonly observed in species with semi-aquatic feeding habits, including herons and egrets, end quote. Oh, that's a handy little feather in the cap of the people saying that Spinosaurus is semi-aquatic. Yes. Although I think most people are saying that now. It's just a question of how semi-aquatic. Yes. What does (laughs) semi-aquatic mean? (laughs) Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm not too surprised that it had a weak bite force either for its really skinny, really long snout. I can't imagine it having a very strong bite force. Yeah. But it's, I mean, alligators also, if you looked at their head alone, you might not notice that they had these enormous muscle attachment points. Right. That's true. (laughs) And that they actually do have very strong bite forces. So yeah, you never know for sure. I'm just, I know we've probably talked about it before, but Carcharodontosaurus having half the bite forces T-Rex is pretty crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I think T-Rex was definitely in a league of its own in terms of bone crushing ability. Mm Mm-hmm. Carcharodontosaurus could probably still do a crazy amount of damage, but when you look at its teeth too, they're more of a slashy tooth than they are a, you know. Bone crushing? Yeah, because Tyrannosaurus teeth are more like a sperm whale sort of tooth. They're Mm -hmm. like a killer whale. You know, one of these just like Mosasaurus too, they have these like conical teeth. Like the, sometimes they're described as like serrated bananas, you know, just Mm -hmm. the ability to really get in there and just break stuff. I think about that a lot whenever we have bananas. Yeah, that it's like a T-Rex tooth. Yeah. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Missing the serrations. Yeah. You don't necessarily need the serrations in order to do the bone crushing because some of those aquatic things don't have them since they're biting slipperier stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you have smaller, sharper teeth, probably not doing a ton of bone crushing. doesn't mean you can't do some bone crushing, but It's not the go-to strategy like it seems to be for (laughs) T-Rex. This next paper, because we haven't talked about sauropods yet, scientists reconstructed an Amargosaurus head. Oh, cool. Yeah, this was in Open Journal of Geology by Georgios Floridas and Paul Christodolides. They looked at how to reconstruct an Amargosaurus head on a full scale. And they said it's the third paper in a series that they've been writing. Their first paper is a short guide that covers big picture topics of paleontology and dinosaurs. And their second paper is about the posture of dinosaurs. (laughs) The first two sound very general. This one seems hyper-specific. This one, kind of. It's about reconstructing dinosaur heads in general, but they used Amargosaurus as their example. Okay. I was going to say, because usually when I think about a Margosaurus, I'm thinking about its neck mm-hmm. and those how it's got those two parallel rows of spines that might have been covered in skin and had like those really cool like pairs of sails sort of mm-hmm. down the neck. I never really think about its head. I just think like <laughs> normal sauropod head. Yeah, but whenever you do any kind of paleo art or reconstructing of dinosaurs, you got to think about the head. Very true. So dinosaur heads, as we know, they came in many shapes and sizes. Tyrannosaurids, quote, had heads of about one-tenth to one-eighth of their total length, end quote. Hadrosaur heads were about one-seventh of their total length. Pachycephalosaurids had heads about one-tenth of their length. That's weird to think that pachycephalosaurs were in the same sort of proportion as tyrannosaurs. Yes, (laughs) it is. 
I'm sure if they included ceratopsians, that would be even a larger fraction still. Oh, that's true. Now, for this paper, to construct the Amargosaurus head, they used wire, rods, wire mesh, screed, various molds, and paint. Oh, so they didn't just draw it. They, no, like, they made, built it. Yeah, they built it. They looked at all the literature on Amargosaurus to get all the details. And they also studied the skull bones and head musculature. They said CT scans helped. Uh, they looked at this from past papers as well as museum restorations. And they compared muscles of crocodiles and birds. So there's a lot of research going into this reconstruction. Yeah, the muscles are definitely super important because like, if, even if you look at a human head, our cheeks are such a defining feature of what our face looks like. And, you know, that's basically all muscle. Yeah. <laughs> you got to have that muscle there to get the shape of the face right. What's cool about this paper, I mean, obviously it's Amargosaurus and I like sauropods, but it breaks down the parts of the skull and it's a good overview if you want an introduction to this sort of thing. And it also goes over the history of what we thought about sauropods, you know, like how we used to think they lived in water and how that affects, for example, nostril placement. Oh yeah, like the Brachiosaurus with the snorkel head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they concluded for Amargosaurus that the nostrils were in the forehead above the eyes. Interesting. And they also said it lacked facial muscles and had large eyes and small ear openings. Don't often think about the ear openings in dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of photos of the process and the end result, and it looks cool. They chose greens and yellows for the skin. Those are popular. Mm -hmm. You don't see a lot of pink dinosaur reconstructions, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's cool to see the whole process. Yeah, that sounds cool. And tips on sculpting, too. You don't get a lot of that. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the sculpting tips, but there are a lot of photos. Our last bit of news, fizz.org featured Doug Boyer, founder of Morphosaurus, a digital repository of museum specimen 3D scans. I'd heard of Morphosaurus. It's cited in a lot of papers. Is that a tongue twister? Morphosaurus? Oh, I didn't think so, but maybe I'm making it sound <laughs> difficult. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. So Boyer made Morphosaurus so that Specimens can be accessible to anybody. In real life, the specimens, there's restricted access to them to protect them. But this digital repository has scans now of over 53,000 specimens from more than 1,000 museums that are located on six continents. Very cool. Yeah, you can upload and download CT scans, 3D models, photos, x-rays, and more. And you can use them to print 3D models if you wanted. Nice. It started in 2013 after Boyer started as a faculty member at Duke University and his job there apparently included funding for this project. And then he got a grant and he made this online interactive visualizer, which we've definitely used. At mm -hmm. the very least, we've looked at certain specimens. Mm -hmm. And then you can see the specimen in your browser. You don't even need to download it. It's pretty cool. I wonder if the goal is to just get everything in museums. And make a 3D digital version. That will be good. I mean, the whole idea behind museums is collecting and keeping things forever mm -hmm. <laughs> so that people can appreciate them. And there isn't really any better way to back it up than having 3D models of it saved where you can replicate it all over the place. It's always better to have the original because you can't do things like testing the chemistry mm -hmm. when you have 
you know, just a 3D printed version of it. But it's it's definitely nice as a backup and it makes it so much more accessible when you can just print it out all over the world to do your comparisons rather than relying on having to get on a plane and fly over to the thing in order to see it. Yeah, true. I mean, I'm I'm glad that they're going to cultural heritage objects. It's important, but I feel like You've got 53,000 specimens. There's so much more. <laughs> I think they're still going. Yeah, that's true. I'd like to see all the important dinosaur stuff get in there. I know most of it still isn't because a lot of museums like to keep that close to the vest, but mm. yeah. Well, we've got a thousand museums so far. That's a good start. It is, yeah. So now we're officially caught up on all the news from the summer. Well done. Sabrina did most of the work going through figuring out which articles to cover and all that, and I appreciate it. Thanks. Because there were a lot. (laughs) I'm glad we got it all done in time for SVP, and then, because I know there's going to be a lot of stuff to cover. Yep. And now we're going to pause for one more quick sponsor break, but when we get back, we'll be talking about how dinosaurs connect to baking. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, so on to our new segment of connecting things to dinosaurs. We're going to connect baking to dinosaurs this week. All right, how did you start? So when I think of baking, I think of bread in an oven, but I needed to know if that was like actually how you define baking. Apparently, you can technically bake over stones or ashes. There's a thing called ash cake, Hmm. which you make basically in ashes. So baking is just using fire? That's Well, you need fire, but you also need a couple other ingredients. Hmm. But the fact that you don't need an oven is helpful because dinosaurs definitely did not have access to ovens. Mm -hmm. And there is at least one example of birds manipulating fire. That's the Australian firehawk. Several people mentioned this to us after we doubted dinosaurs' abilities (laughs) as depicted in Prehistoric Planet. Mm -hmm. They were like, you guys obviously don't know about firehawks because they do this. But interestingly, firehawks are not a single species. It's not like it's the firehawk. There are several species that all exhibit the same behavior, and they're just colloquially called firehawks. One paper found that there are at least three species, including the brown falcon, the black kite, and the whistling kite. They're all raptors, but falcons and kites are actually fairly distant relatives. As best as I can tell, the common ancestor is about 50 million years ago at the earliest, So yeah, they're quite distant. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, kites are primarily scavengers, but also spend some time hunting, sometimes gathering in groups. 
Whistling kites also like to quote-unquote pirate meals from ibises, herons, and other raptors. Oh, interesting. And they've even been seen forcing large waterfowl to regurgitate their prey so that they can take it. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're not that big, which is pretty impressive. Bullies. Yeah, seriously. If a common ancestor had that behavior, it's possible that a dinosaur could have manipulated fire as well, considering, like I said, the most recent common ancestor between these firehawks is 50 million years ago. Maybe that behavior went all the way back into the Cretaceous. Who knows? However, if they used fire, it would probably be to scare out prey or help collect it in a smaller area. For example, the firehawks sometimes wait above roads for prey to flee across a road from the fire. Smart. Yeah, apparently prey is a lot easier to catch on asphalt than in the brush. (laughs) You have sort of a cleared path. I guess you could say that Firehawks might inadvertently, quote unquote, bake prey from time to time, especially since they scavenge. Hmm. You know, they might spread a fire. There might be an animal that didn't escape. They might get back to it later and then eat something that was, quote unquote, baked. But I don't think that actually counts as baking. That's more cooking or roasting. roasting. Yeah. As far as making bread is concerned, because that's basically what baking entails, I'm wondering in a theoretical version of the Mesozoic where there is a dinosaur that understands how to make bread, would it be possible? Hmm. So it's sort of a big leap in terms of their intelligence and their similarity to us in culture that they would be interested in bread. Right. But basically for ingredients to make bread, you need heat, which we know, okay, firehawks, maybe they could figure out how to manipulate fire. And then there's really only two other ingredients that you definitely need. You need water and flour And then sometimes you need a leavening agent and or fat, but you don't necessarily need those. Just real quick, can't baking also refer to things like cakes? Yeah, but it's still in the same ingredients. Mm, Okay. In that case, sometimes you might need the cacao like we talked about last week. If you're going to make a chocolate cake Mm -hmm. or you you can make chocolate bread too. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of times there's sugar too is another other sweetener type things or other things you might want to put in the bread. But in terms of water and flour, water specifically has been on Earth for 4.4 billion years, so it was definitely available for dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Also, dinosaurs like us, most of their body was made out of water. Right. They needed to drink water to survive. They did. Flour is much trickier to figure out if it would have been available to dinosaurs in the Mesozoic. So most flour today is made from wheat because of its gluten that gives bread its appealing texture and cake and everything gives mm-hmm. it that nice sponginess. Wheat didn't exist until about 10,000 years ago when humans cultivated grass into a crop with larger fruit and other traits that make collecting the grains more practical, just like the cacao. You know, we had to figure out all these plants and how to make them practical for human consumption. So dinosaurs did not have access to wheat. Not the type of wheat that we know and love. They might have had access to something in a group called monocots, which evolved in the Cretaceous. Wheat is a type of monocot, and at least some dinosaurs might have been around when there was something wheat, vaguely wheat-like, <laughs> which if they could grind up, mix with water and heat, they could bake into some kind of flat bread. Monocots also include the other two largest cereal grains, rice and maize, among others, and you can also bake with rice and maize. So if there were any of those variants around in the Mesozoic. They could have used those for baking. But whatever grain 
they found would have had to be harvested. I'm thinking maybe Therizinosaurus with its huge scythe-like claws could help with <laughs> collecting grain. <laughs> A farming dinosaur. Exactly. Then it would need to be ground up. That maybe could have been possible with something with a dental battery, like a hadrosaur or an ornithischian could have been grinding away at the grain. So these dinosaurs need to work together. Yes, probably. I don't know. Maybe an ornithischian could collect it somehow too. And then it's just a matter of adding water and then heating it up and you've got bread. Hmm. I mean, probably a not great flat bread, but it would still technically be bread that was baked. The other ingredients that aren't strictly necessary, but are often in bread are the fat and the leavening agent. For fat, there were mammals around in the Mesozoic, so milk fat even was available. They could have theoretically churned mammal milk fat into butter. Mm. It's hard to imagine a dinosaur milking a mammal, but it could kill the mammal and get at its milk. Ooh. A much easier option, though, would be to just get fat from other parts of the body, like suet. You know, you just get the fat out of the muscle tissue, and then you could use that. Seems odd that Presumably, it'd be an herbivorous dinosaur that would even want the bread, but then they'd kill a mammal to get an ingredient for their bread. Yeah, that's true. So maybe they would skip the fat and make one of the breads that doesn't require it. Yeah. Or maybe these dinosaurs are all working together and then they entice some mammals to work with them. Yeah, that's true. Could be. It could be that mammals made the bread and then dinosaurs just ate it. Mm. And then the dinosaurs did something else for the mammals. Or they just took it because they're dinosaurs. Oh, <laughs> like the firehawks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were kind of on the same wavelength because my first thought was yeast when it came to baking. The leavening agent. Mm. And yeasts have been around for a very long time. I think the first yeasts were around like 500 million years ago. Okay, so every dinosaur coexisted with yeast. Yeah. We know of at least... 1,500 species of yeast, which is about 1% of all known fungal species. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, I didn't know there were so many species of yeast before I looked this up. Now, within yeast, the Saccharomycetaceae family covers 200 million years, and that includes Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the species used for that we humans use for baking, winemaking, and brewing. It's also known as baker's yeast. It's the same yeast for all the things we use yeast for, pretty much. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Oh, also the earliest definite records of humans using yeast to bake bread are from ancient Egypt. So we've been doing this for a while. Yeah. So that, I mean, that might go almost as far back as when humans cultivated wheat. Mm. According to... The paper, Why, When, and How to Yeast Evolve Alcoholic Fermentation, this was by Sophia Dashko and others, published in FEMS Yeast Research, and that stands for Federation of European Microbiological Societies. I love the why part of that. Yeah. Like the when and how is what we usually talk about. But, like but why? why? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they said that modern plants with fruits originated about 125 million years ago in the Cretaceous. And, quote, brought to microbial communities a new, larger, and increasingly abundant source of food based on simple sugars, end quote. So that started yeast as we know them and use them today. As for the dinosaur connection, yeasts were benefiting from the same fruits that some dinosaurs ate, because this is back in the Cretaceous. Now, 
Saccharomyces cerevisiae came around about 20 million years ago, so after the dinosaurs. And that's my more scientific connection of yeast to dinosaurs, or baking to dinosaurs, I suppose. So the type of yeast we use wasn't available for dinosaurs? Yes. So they might have been stuck with flatbreads. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unless they figured out with a different species of yeast, I don't know. But I had some other thoughts around baking and dinosaurs. So, for example, episode 281, we interviewed Ralph, who's the head sculptor at Carlo's Bakery, also known as Cake Boss, who also stars on Buddy vs. Duff, and he made a near-life-size replica of Zool out of cake. Yeah, that's an easy one, huh? Yeah. All the cakes that have been made to make look like dinosaurs. <laughs> exactly. Oh, there's also a lot of chocolate molding for the details, going back to that chocolate. That was the coolest dinosaur cake I've ever seen. Yes. The Great British Bake Off has also featured a few dinosaur cakes. I'm not sure if they were on the show, but they're featured on their website. I think I've seen almost every episode of that show. Yeah, you've seen more episodes than me. The first one I found is Claire Stevens' dinosaur cake that she made for a toddler's birthday, and it's this green ceratopsian head. That makes me think that maybe you make these cakes or you bake something as part of your audition. Maybe they put that on the website. It's a pretty cool one. Looks kind of cartoony. Might be too cute to eat. There's also Amelia Weaver's dinosaur biscuits that it says that they didn't turn out quite as planned. They do look tasty, though. There's a few different dinosaur shapes, like a stegosaur and then uh, maybe a theropod with some green frosting. We've also dabbled in baking and dinosaurs. I don't know if you remember, Garrett, we got some cookie molds to make 3D dinosaurs. That was a present. I do. And we made Triceratops and T-Rex and Stegosaurus and Brachiosaurus cookies, and they could stand on their own cookie legs. And then we painted them with different colored frosting. They did not look the greatest, but they tasted good enough. And they're fun to make. And we made a video of it. It's on our YouTube channel. Yeah, I remember they didn't look super great, so I ended up taking some of the ones that broke and made like a tableau of that one getting eaten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and we used pink or red frosting on that one. Yep. So yeah, baking and dinosaurs. Turns out there's a lot of connections. <laughs> <laughs> and now onto our dinosaur of the day, Udanoceratops, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. It was a leptoceratopsid dinosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia, in the Jogdokta Formation. It's estimated to be about 13 feet or 4 meters long and weigh 1,500 pounds or 700 kilograms. It's the largest known leptoceratopsid that we know of so far. That is pretty big for a leptoceratopsid. I always think of them as little, tiny, cutesy ceratopsians. Yeah. I walked on four legs. The paleo art shows it having a short tail. Its skull was about 24 inches or 60 centimeters long, and it had a short, deep skull as well as a short frill and no horns on the nose or over the eyes. It had robust, deep jaws and a curved lower jaw and a parrot-like, toothless beak. It was herbivorous. It probably grasped or cropped vegetation with its beak and sheared and crushed with its teeth. It probably ate tough vegetation. The holotype was found in the 1980s, and it was described in 1992 by Sergei Kurzanov. The type species is Udanoceratops, Shizhovai. The genus name means Udan's horned face, and it refers to where the fossils were found, the Udan Seir locality of the Jadogda formation. The holotype's a large individual, and it includes a well-preserved, nearly complete skull and vertebrae. 
1993, a skull was assigned to Udanoceratops. The skull was nearly three feet or one meters long and came from the nearby Bayan Mandahu Formation, according to Tomas Jeshuas. That's pretty long, three feet for a leptoceratopsid. Well, in 2020, Lukas Shepinski said that the skull most likely belonged to Protoceratops, Helenchorinus, which is not a leptoceratopsid. In 2004, Viktor Tereshenko referred a juvenile specimen to Udanoceratops. That specimen came from the Baga Tariak locality, where Tereshenko said was part of the Jadokta formation. In 2010, Mahito Watabi and others found that the Baga Tariak locality correlated the best with the Barungoyot formation. The specimen's now been assigned, quote, Udanoceratops. SP and or question mark Udanoceratops species SP. That means that there's some uncertainty around what exactly it is. In 2006, V.S. Tereshenko suggested Udanoceratops was quote unquote facultatively aquatic and that on land, Udanoceratops could move both quickly and slowly, quote, rapid and slow locomotor modes. Wow, that's a weird thing to say. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> In the paper, it said that there was, quote, interesting data from previous papers that supported the idea of protoceratopoids. And I don't know why it said protoceratopoids. I tried to look that name or that word up and I didn't find that anywhere else. Yeah. Sometimes people just make up words. I guess uh, presumably it includes leptoceratopsids. Mm. So I guess these various small ceratopsian type things in Asia. Well, it supports the idea of them being buried in ways that suggest they had, quote, an affinity to water bodies during the animal's life, amphibiotic mode of life, end quote, meaning they had this amphibious life. Weird. Basically, no, quote, traces of long transportation before burial, end quote, which means they were buried close to where they died. They looked at a number of protoceratopoids including Udanoceratops, and studied features, quote, that are presumably connected with particular adaptations, mode of life, and locomotion, end quote. They said that Udanoceratops had 10 thoracic vertebrae, that's the upper and middle part of the back, and a somewhat flexible neck. And they found that the upper and middle back area, quote, is relatively weakly mobile, end quote, while the lower back, quote, shows a high mobility. They said that protoceratopsids were, quote, probably amphibionts and relatively good swimmers, end quote, based on having the flattened tail with high neural spines, which is good for swimming movements. That's what I thought you were going to talk about. Yeah, they have a really big, tall tail. Yes. And you could see how someone would say, well, they flapped it back and forth (laughs) and that's how they got through the water. Yeah. There's also the presence of mollusks in some nests and the distribution of nests supports this water idea. They also said that Based on the tail, quote, Bagaceratops was probably the most aquatic, followed by Protoceratops, Udanoceratops, and the most terrestrial, Leptoceratops. Wow. Even rating them. Yes. Ranking them on their aquaticness. I am not sure how widely accepted these aquatic ideas are. It's an interesting idea. It almost reminds me of Stromer's Riddle, but for herbivores, Mm. because there are a lot of different Ceratopsians in Mongolia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, around where these different Ceratopsians lived. And you could see how someone would basically, how like Spinosaurus, well, it was aquatic and it ate the fish. So it wasn't competing directly with Carcharodontosaurus and these other big carnivores. 
maybe Leptoceratops was herbivorous, but eating algae and sea ferns, <laughs> whatever <laughs> kind of plants grow in the water. <laughs> maybe. Or mollusks, like you said, were in the nests. That would be interesting. That was the first paper I'd read about Leptoceratops is swimming. Yeah, I've never heard about this. I like it, though. It's mm -hmm. clever. It, it's an interesting idea. It is. Now, other animals that lived around the same time and place as Udanoceratops included Avamimus, the Ovaraptorosaur, Bagaceratops, the Ceratopsian, Protoceratops, as well as amphibians, crocodilomorphs, mammals, and turtles. And our fun fact, Garrett, you were right, I have the fun fact this week, is that scientists found there may have been a common origin 407 million years ago for nose-breathing vertebrates to communicate with sound. This was published in Nature Communications by Gabriel Jorge Witch Cohen and others. Nose-breathing vertebrates communicating with sound. So that's like a vocal cord? Yes. <laughs> But I guess they're not vocal cords. It's just... Well, it's vocalizations. Through the mouth, because they're breathing through the nose, presumably. I think they specified nose-breathing vertebrates because they didn't talk about fish. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's vocalizations and behaviors. So making sounds to communicate is important for many vertebrates. It helps with parental care and attracting mates, just as some examples. There have been previous hypotheses that communicating with sound evolved multiple times. What this team did was they recorded vocalizations and behaviors of 53 species, turtles, tuatara, a type of reptile, some limbless amphibians, and lungfish. That is a, that's a wide net at that yeah, branches of the life tree. You got to go back really far before all those things converge. Yes. Well, these animals in the past were often thought to be non-vocal, and they said that's based on limited data. They actually mostly looked at turtles. 50 of the species they looked at were turtles. <laughs> turtles come up so much with our dinosaur talks. Yeah, good thing the sauropods didn't get to all of them. <laughs> Still 50 species made it. Anyway, <laughs> they found that they all made a number of different sounds, whether it was chirps or clicks or complex tones. So I don't think that's, is that necessarily vocal cords if you're chirping no. and clicking? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely all these species, maybe none of them have vocal cords. Yeah. So that's why they say communicate with sound. They looked at the data and previous papers of making sounds to communicate for 1,800 species, and that included all vertebrates except fish. So again, that's how we get that nose-breathing vertebrates. And they found that all use air circulation to produce sounds. Hmm. They proposed that all nose-breathing vertebrates then had a common origin for acoustic communication, and that common origin's from about 407 million years ago. And that means the ability to vocalize started well before dinosaurs. I wonder if that means could all dinosaurs have vocalized? Yeah, I've always assumed that all dinosaurs make noise. Certainly every depiction of dinosaurs in any sort of pop culture they're making noise. Mm -hmm. You almost never see a silent dinosaur. In fact, they're usually so noisy that they can't resist screaming even while hunting. Yeah. So. <laughs> but really, we only know about a few dinosaurs like Parasaurolophus. Yeah. We assume that one probably made noise based on maybe it made its big weird horn crest thing yeah, resonate. 
And with T-Rex, there's been so many ideas out there like, did it chirp? Yeah, or did it boom or growl or... Guttural sounds, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, birds are very noisy. So it would make sense that dinosaurs would also make some noise. But we're not exactly sure when the syrinx evolved, which is what modern birds mostly use, at least the little ones. Mm. So, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of just because all these animals make noise by moving air, that means they have a common ancestor that did the same thing. Because on land, when you're breathing air, mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's how it's just sort of a physics question. Like, that would be how you would do it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't evolve more than once. Hmm. It's an interesting idea. It'd be kind of cool to think we all can make sounds because of this one common ancestor. Yeah, it's interesting. I also, I think it's reasonable though to say that if you look at all these animals that people think are super quiet, like turtles and tuatar and lung, lungfish, like who would think that was making noises mm-hmm. like through its mouth? <laughs> if you look at basically the quietest animals and you find out all of them made sounds. Mm-hmm then it is pretty reasonable to say, okay, well, lots of animals probably made sounds in the distant past too, whether or not it seems obvious. Yeah. That's a cool study. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you are not already a patron, join our community now so you get access to all that sweet bonus content that's going to be coming out soon from SVP. And again, we'll be talking about things other than dinosaurs, like pterosaurs, mosasaurs. Maybe some turtles. We're not sure yet, but it's going to be pretty cool. So you can join at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time.